Well, hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Red Couch Theology Podcast. This week, we're dealing with all sorts of fascinating subjects like uh, predestination and election. Yeah, that sounds strange to come out of Jeremiah, but it's one of the questions you all submitted, and so we deal with it. Uh, And it actually stems from this weird phrase that was found in Jeremiah where it says, God plans a destruction for Israel. So what do we do? Does God plan our destruction? Anyway, these are the kinds of questions we're going to be dealing with in this episode, and I'm not going to belabor the subject anymore here. Let's just dive right into this episode. There we are. We tried to do something. I was so fancy, and then I wasn't fancy. So, so let me let me explain to everyone. You were so fancy in that you dialed up all of this great system, and then you forgot to press the power button. Yes. So, <laughs> hey, remember last week when I was talking about my nerdy little stream deck? I programmed it finally this week, and uh, I I have all these fun little buttons that do sorts of random things on the system, but. When you don't turn on your microphones at all, yeah, it doesn't matter that they're programmed. You forgot to integrate your power supply at source. Yeah, like if you don't turn on the light switch, the lights don't t- turn on. Turns out, no matter what you do. Uh, Welcome well, to the Red Couch. So does this like make like coughing noises and farting noises and stuff, or does this? Oh, I could like, do that over here. Oh, you can. Oh. Um, actually, I don't know if I what, what buttons I have over here. Oh, they're not turned on right now. That's fine. Okay. All right. So anyway, um. We are on the show, and now I'm all thrown off because I didn't have audio, and I like short circuited my brain brain for a second. Well, we are constantly trying to make the show better for all of you, and and and, by, yeah, and, and, and thereby making it worse. Yeah. <laughs> and just because... so you know, we are working on in this room a wonderful set for Easter. No one gets to know what it is yet, but if you're part of South, be excited for Resurrection Sunday in just like ten days. What? I'm excited. I'm excited. So I I love it. One of the fun features we have is now we can do this. Look at us. We're still there. We're still on the for all of the people that watch live and on video later, as opposed to podcast. Look at that. And we we're in the corner when we show the passage of scripture. Like we are some serious stuff. Yeah. I I I love that there's people that do watch on video. I can never watch stuff on video. I'm just too all over the place. I have to be doing other things. What's so. weird is I use YouTube as a podcast service. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. If you yeah. if you have a premium one, you can just have the audio. turn off your phone and yeah. or like you the screen and you can just listen. Which actually you can do even if you don't have the premium one. Because if you just lock your screen, it just goes to like and then reopen it. It just brings up the little thing, and if you hit play, it just plays. That didn't used to be true. No, you used to true. have to pay for premium in order no, to get now, that feature. Now you can just you can you can you can uh, work the system now. Um, really? Anyway, yeah. Well, I, I've done it many a time. All right. So I think anyway. Tips and tricks on how to hack the system <laughs> with Alex. <laughs> and Walton. maybe it's something that I need to repent from, which is a delightful segue. Oh, uh, and just I see a, what you did a there. Subtle segue to our uh, topic for this week. So for those of you who've been tracking Jeremiah, um, he's become a friend at this point, I think. Yeah, like you were kind of bad-mouthing him a little bit in the beginning, oh, and that's... now you uh, were you a little bit nervous maybe about it. And, oh, man. I, I think, and I now think, yeah. you're kind of, it's become a really... It's just so dense. So I, I, what I was worried about was, I, I was kind of worried, could people even track with the story? 
Yeah. Now, of course, like... The answer is no. Yeah, man. This is much, why you're yeah. dipping into yeah, yeah. sections. If you were to just read the whole thing, everyone would uh-huh. be like, uh... Even the passage you read this week was, like, really intense. Yeah. And it's kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It feels like you're getting just smacked around yeah. by the text. And then... Um, yeah, yeah there's, there's, so those of you that didn't read it with us, there's literally a part of Jeremiah chapter 19, I think it was, where where Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord is this, uh, you will be forced to eat each other because the siege will press in so hard um, and there'll be no other food. Like, I mean, that's pretty gruesome stuff. Um, that That's like society crumbling to the like, the imagined point of view, right? I mean, we we have like these worst case scenarios. Uh, yeah. And that's like that. Yeah. So with that, why don't we just, you know, rather than beat around the bush or talk about tea or talk about my technology anymore, we should just go right to the heart of the issue. Okay. And say, so God ordains and controls people to the place where they eat their own Selves, except he says, their own kind. except he doesn't even ordain it. Well, he says, I will cause it, right? Yeah, but then he says, like, if you repent, I won't. So it's not like it's like locked in, even like that's the difficult thing with his. Well, I'm trying to make this intense, okay? Yeah. I'm trying to like <laughs> ratchet up the intensity, you just like brushed it off like it was nothing. Well, well, it's it's this weird, like, it is intense language, and, and it's also probably written after it happened. Uh, I, I mean, oh, wow, okay. like, m- m- at least. The collection of Jeremiah as a book happens way after the actual siege happens. Yeah. So okay. so at some point they're reflecting back on, so it's like, oh yeah, it doesn't have to happen, but it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen because it did happen. Um, so if you go to Jeremiah, I think 1812 maybe. Yeah, um, yeah that's what I'm trying to pull But they up. will reply, it's no use. They will continue with their own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our own hearts. So... So in the verse before, it says, I'm preparing a disaster for you, so turn, repent, each one of you, and um, reform your ways and your actions. Yeah, this is a glorious little line right here. Like, this is this is God's voice. I am preparing disaster for you. Yeah. That's, uh, huh, that's a little intense. It is. So, um, and, but... Contextually, you're saying now all schol- most scholars think that this is af- written after the fact, or so, some so it's collected into a book. So it's it's the the fascinating thing about Jeremiah as a collection. Supposing he, I mean, I have no problem with Jeremiah being one person. There's lots of commentators that would say this is multiple people writing all under, and it's all been gathered under the name of one person. I have no problem with it being one person. Yeah. Um. But. To bring it together as a book, it has to happen after the fact. And Baruch doesn't get mentioned for the first half of the book, pretty much. So, it, like the okay. scribal element of it, pulling stuff together, collating it, definitely seems like it's later. Um, so, it means that whoever pulls it together, let's say it's Baruch, this guy that gets mentioned in multiple points in the last part, Somewhere he's reflecting back and he's still going to pull together 20 years of sermons before destruction. Or not, maybe not 20 years, but, but a good like 15 years of sermons before destruction and say, we're still going to include this part of the book. 20 chapters. Yeah, so yes. it's in theory may have been 
collated or edited and po like in post, but he's still recording what was supposedly said prior. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so it's it's, but it, but it's still the importance of talking about it and reflecting on what what was happening. Maybe so people like us can look back and say, well, what happens to a society that lives this kind of way? Um, yeah. So I think we read. I think the natural inclination of the human heart to when you read passages like this is, uh, and maybe this is because, uh, before I say it, maybe this is because we're sort of inclined to assume that God doesn't like us mm, yeah. and that he's, he's out to, he's just kind of waiting to pounce and tell us when we're wrong or whatever. There, there's that sort of underlying fear for many of us. And so then you run into a passage and you're like, aha, see, he plans destruction for me. Yeah. Um, or you've heard this God of love, you've heard of uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, all this stuff, and you read a passage like this and you're like, oh, God the Father is so different than Jesus is. Mm. Um, so there's a, there's a, God the Father is this sort of angry character in the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus sort of like assuages his anger and calms him down a little bit, yeah. like says, dad, chill. <laughs> um, or God changes personalities. He's yeah. got split, per, split personality disorder. Yeah. Or, 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 or. So what's what's going on here? Is this God's heart for the people um, in, in this passage? And why shouldn't we maybe read it that way? Or should we? So, so I, th I think it... It clearly isn't his heart for them because of the the last the next verse, right? So so the disaster is planned because of their behavior. Like what one of the things Jeremiah never does is he never lets the people off the hook for what's going to happen. But he also never lets God off the hook for what's going to happen either. Jeremiah kind of sits in the middle. He's not on one side or the other completely. Mm. Uh, there's times where he turns around to, to God, which again, some of the beautiful invite of relationship that the, the scriptures have for us. He turns around. I think we talked about this last week. He's like, no, like you can't do this or you shouldn't do this. Um, and, but, but he never he never lets us believe that what's going to happen to these people is because of bad foreign policy or, or bad home policy or because they didn't build the right diplomatic relationships or something like that. It's always linked back to the way that they behave. Uh, and actually, bizarrely, like the, the central thing seems to be quite often uh, how they treat the poor. Yeah, okay. So um, I'll give you that. Let's, let's say... It's based upon the way we behave. So therefore, God is, if we're bad, he's going to smack us. If we're good, everything yeah, is well, awesome. Certainly, everything so, is certainly, awesome. Certainly. That's, that's the framework, right? Um, I, I think that that, is, that that wouldn't be a healthy reading when you look at what happens with other nations. I wish we weren't live right now. No, <laughs> no I'm just joking. This is an intense issue for a lot of people. It's, yeah, I mean, it's I mean, scary. Like, so for... at the same time, Babylon is a horrendous society and... So he's saying, I'm going to use Babylon to punish An even people. potentially worse society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, now, and then I'm going to punish them for what they've done as well. So, so it's not simply like um, the, the good nations come into ascendancy. Um, I, I wonder what nation, if it was just simply niceness, which nation would be the, the best nation? I mean, 
In terms of caring for the poor, you'd probably have to argue it's all the Scandinavian nations, like quality of wealth and everything like that. So they'd be the richest, most powerful nations in the world. Uh, so oh. so the, the, I think the, the, the intriguing question you asked is, it seems like God here is an operator amongst nations. Um, he, he's the, the, the metaphor of a chessboard works to a degree. He moves, he moves pieces around. He says that these are my, he talks about Cyrus as, as, as my, my agent. Um, you know, he, he's going to do what I tell him to do. My servant, um, talks about Nebuchadnezzar in the same way. These great and powerful Kings. He says, no, I, I operate and I make them do what I want them to do. Hmm. And, and some of that will come true as we get to the end of Jeremiah. Cyrus turns up after Nebuchadnezzar and for however many centuries, everyone's had the same foreign policy, um, which is you go conquer a nation and you take them off into slavery back to your homeland and you put them to work in terrible conditions and you, yeah, the, the nation disappears there. You make them marry all the all people of your nation. They lose all their sense of identity. It's what the Assyrians did to Israel, which is why Israel never really returns in the same way the people of Judah will return. Hmm. Um, and Jeremiah says later on, oh, you're going to come back in 70 years. And, and when you look at it, you're like, that, sh that should never be able to happen. Like they should just disappear off the face of the map because everyone disappears off the face of the map. Yeah. And then Cyrus turns up and says, ah, oh, you know, my foreign policy is that people serve you better in their homeland and they're more engaged in their work and care for the land if it's their homeland. I'm just going to start sending people back home. Um, no one's ever done that before. Yeah. And just in about the right time, Cyrus turns up and is like, yeah, I just created this new foreign policy. And the people that God said would come home start coming home. Um, hmm. which is fascinating. Uh, so, but, so the, there's all this language that suggests God has, has control over what happens in the world, at least on a macro level. Yeah, absolutely. But absolutely. Jeremiah won't let us get away with the fact that human decisions, they affect that. Um, there's no, there's no fatality here. There's no sense of like, it's got nothing to do with us. Yeah. The, it's not a deterministic, um, framework. It's not. Um, and, and because there's this if, like, I want... So maybe one helpful thing to read a passage like this is to say, uh, like, try, try your best to not jump to the conclusion about the character of God until you've actually searched the text yeah. for the character of God, which is, I want something better for you. Yeah. So, and one way to do this, even in the book of Jeremiah, is like, if you look at this passage here, you've got Jeremiah, this is chapter 18, verse 11... He says, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. And then, same book, Jeremiah 29, 11, the most famous verse in all mm -hmm. of Jeremiah. I know the plans for you. I have a, for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope uh -huh. and a future. So which one is it? It's... Yeah, the answer is yes. So, so then, so then that pushes us into all of the element of like, how do we read scripture like this? Totally. So the the complex element there is we tend to read all of the prophetic scripture as as entirely like foretelling. Um, and ca causation, yeah, like, yeah, and it's yeah. it's it, but that's just not the genre. 
So, so like we look for like, oh, I want, I want to see it say like on this date, this will happen on this date, this will happen on this date, this will happen. Um, and that's just not how people of this day and age saw scripture and saw the art of being a prophet. It was yeah. forth telling. It was like, if you keep doing this, this is what happens to a society that acts that way. Um, yeah. so, so we, we, are. Our imagination automatically goes to God giving them word by word everything to say. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so what we have to say is if that's how it works, that's very different to how we hear from God now. Yeah, and actually that's not the orthodox view of inspiration no, at all. No, that's That's the orthodox view for the Quran. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not the no, orthodox view for the scriptures, yeah. which is God breathed, meaning there's this interaction between the human author and God, and yes. then God inspires and, and yeah, breathes. But it's become the perceived orthodox view of scriptures. Yeah, that it was of it the, floated down and yeah. landed on on the So so we almost imagine that that like that God is there in the background saying uh, I know the purposes I have for you. No, no, not purposes, Jeremiah. Like write plans instead. I like that better. Like that that level of detail is what we imagine when we talk about scripture as authoritative, scripture as inspired, all those different things. I think that's a very American view actually of scriptures. Uh, and so fascinatingly, like if you read, if you talk to a German about this stuff, a German will say, uh, well, the role of a prophet in in prophecy is that you might say, did it come to pass or did it not come to pass? But there's no blame associated on the prophet. There's no credit to him if it does come to pass. There's no like slight on him if it doesn't come to pass. Uh, that's just not how it works because that's prophecy and, and that's how it's always been. Some things the prophets say don't come true because people they either repent. repent or don't repent. So So it's all impinged on human behavior, all those different things. There's no guarantee this will happen because people's actions determine whether it does or not. Interestingly, God never prophesies. God only promises. And his promises always come true. So people make prophecies about what God will do. And sometimes they come true, depending on people's behavior. And sometimes they don't, depending on people's behavior. When God says something, he promises, and it always happens. Yeah, okay, so... This is this was actually super helpful for me when it came to some of these prophetic passages. Um, is uh, I'm just basically just going to reiterate something you said in my own words. Um, a, a huge percentage, maybe not a hundred percent, but a huge percentage of passages like this are God revealing to humanity how He designed. Human relationships, nations, mm. and thing to function. If you do this kind of thing over and over and over again, there is a cause and effect relationship between um, that kind of behavior and this kind of outcome. Alex is just blowing his nose for a second. Just in case you're watching, he just, <laughs> I started talking, he ran out of the room. No, <laughs> no, it's just, so, uh, so. It's it's actually a kindness for him to say like like for example, if you beat your head against a wall, you will get a bruise and a bump on your forehead. Yeah, that's is that. So let's say that was the prophetic voice that happened, and then you beat your head against the wall, and you're like, God, you gave me a bruise. Yeah, 
Yeah, or you wanted me to get a bruise. You wanted me to get a... You predicted it, so it happened. Yeah, and so... and then, But the reality is like, no, I prophesied so that you wouldn't do that, you idiot. Yeah, yeah. You know, I told you what was going to happen if you smashed your face against the, 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 the wall. Yeah, so the best, if you struggle with God's heart in this prophetic word, in any prophetic word, in any of the prophetic texts that we read, I always think Jonah is the best place to go to capture that heartbeat oh, uh, yeah. because it's sure it's kind of almost supposed to be humorous because Jonah kind of arrives in Nineveh and gives literally the worst mes message any prophet ever gives. He doesn't do any of this stuff. He doesn't predict no. any disaster. He's just like, repent or you'll perish. It's almost like he wants them to not repent. It's like really half-hearted. So Jeremiah's like the overachieving yeah, he prophet. He's like he's using totally, illustrations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's got word pictures and they don't listen. And, and Jonah just turns up and he's like, oh yeah, God says repent, otherwise you'll perish. And everyone's like, everyone's falls on that. He doesn't even like, tell the, like the core of the city. He's like on the outskirts. Yeah, he's, he's like, just like, you know, like hey, under his breath. It's almost like he doesn't try. And everyone confesses. Uh, and then yeah. he gets mad when everyone, everyone does repent. Because yeah. he hates them. Uh, they've destroyed the Israelites. They've destroyed, I mean, they're terrible people. And then you hear God say to him at the end, you know, like, um, you're upset because of a plant that dies that you didn't, you didn't grow, you didn't yeah. make. Should my heart not ache for the city of Nineveh that has 150,000 people that don't know the left hand from the right hand? Mm. Uh, so that, that, like, that chapter four of Jonah gives that real heartbeat. Um, Ezekiel does the same thing. He's a contemporary of Jeremiah. He starts saying, you know, my longing is for people to obey. Um, and, and his word to Ezekiel is as a watchman, speak the word. And if people listen, great. If they don't listen, that's on them. If you don't speak the words, if they don't listen or they don't repent, it's on you. Um, because you didn't tell them what they were supposed to hear. And Jeremiah operates in the same way. He's like, I'm just going to tell you the natural consequences of what you're doing are these things. Yeah. Have you ever done like, um, have you ever read the parenting book? Like, I think, is it, is it Grace Love and parenting? Logic? Oh yeah, Love and, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, it's yeah, Love and Logic, yeah. where it's basically the premise of this parenting. Actually, I've learned a ton about Jesus. Yeah. And about, oh, totally, ab yeah. about the way God works with humanity from this little parenting mm -hmm. book, which is based in scriptural principles and these sorts of things. But one of the principles for parenting is as much as possible, let the natural consequences discipline your child yes. instead of you um, going out of your way to invent new kinds of disciplines. Like the example I just gave, if you smash your head against the wall, yeah. it will hurt. Yeah. Um, and I don't do that. Don't smash your head against the wall. If they smash their head against the wall, uh, the natural consequences is it hurts. Yeah. You don't also then need to, to spank them or ground them uh -huh. in, on top of it. They start to realize, oh, my parent said the consequences and it happened. That's kind of how God works yes. with these prophets. He's like, don't be an idiot. It will yeah. hurt you. Yeah. They're an idiot. It hurts them. Yeah. He comes you back in and he restores. put your hand on the stove. I told you it was hot. You found out the stove is hot. Yep. You might not put your hand on the stove again. Yeah, and so uh, we aren't going to get into a parenting seminar here, but it's, uh, I recommend that book, by the way, uh -huh. but it is a super powerful concept to help you understand the nature of God's discipline of his people, because he operates very much the same way and very similar to the book. One of the roles a parent plays after disobedience is 
the natural, sometimes painful consequences take place. And then the parent has the gift of coming in to be an empathetic healer. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what God does with Israel over and over and over again. I see you've been an idiot. Mm -hmm. I'm here. Let me give you a hug. Yeah. Let's talk about why that was stupid Mm -hmm. and let's not do it again. Yeah. You know, um, that just this cycle that happens all throughout the scriptures, all throughout Israel's history, all throughout the church's history. Huh. Yeah. And so the invitation is to repentance, which really, I mean, he talks about there in in chapter, in uh, verse 11. Uh, Oh, let Um, me go back to this tab. I got to use this feature as much as possible because it now, feels yeah. so cool, like picture so in picture. So turn from your evil ways. The word there is shub, um, which is quite literally where, to turn. Where are we at? Turn. Sometimes in other in other writers, they'll use the word teshuva, which literally means turn around. Turn back, um, return. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's an invite back. I, I was trying to think like, so if teshuva is repent, is shub just pent? But I don't know if that's like a, <laughs> to pent. <laughs> uh, is that a verb? Tell um, us out there if, if put it a comment in the the comment someone section. Someone who's really good you, at Hebrew to English re-pent, translation is re- pent the uh, yeah. yeah. It's like whelmed. Can you be whelmed? You can be Over, overwhelmed can or be... underwhelmed, but can you just be whelmed? Um, wow, my know. mind is exploding <laughs> right now. I don't even know what to do with myself. <laughs> can you just be whelmed? Um, how you doing? I'm just whelmed. So uh, that that led us on this fascinating, to me at least, uh, strand on Sunday, which was really centered around like my upbringing around repentance. Yeah. So not only was that a real individual thing for us, it was a really corporate thing. So I re- went to repentance services over slavery. Um, you know, whole churches coming together to say to ask God's forgiveness. Um, uh, and then, yeah, the individual aspect, of course, as well, like the constant sense of turning around again and again and again. At least on the surface with the idea of you are welcome, um, you know, the prodigal son image of a son that turns around who's in the, the far country and he comes home. Yeah. And, and the father's there to welcome him. Except I never really was great at experiencing at least the emotion of welcome. Um, yeah. Yeah, so... So far in the podcast, we've sort of made advocated for the value of repentance. Yeah. Basically, repentance is don't do the stupid thing. Yeah. Um, instead, or stop doing it, or or and or stop doing it, or you already did it. Yeah. And you're saying that was stupid. I agree. And now I'm turning. Broadly so, speaking, it's orient yourself again towards your father. Yeah. Or do the things that I've instructed, which is actually a pathway to life. Um. But now you're saying there's a subtle misunderstanding of repentance, which might not be as healthy. It's a, I repent and repent and repent, and basically I'm still trying to control God with my repentance, I or don't even know what is to control it? it. It's, it's almost like, for me at least, my experience was, was the guilt of like feeling like a failure, um, feeling like God must be pretty annoyed at me by now. Um, I don't feel like it was experience of grace, of a welcome. Hmm. So we even talked about, you know, the, the, um, Mumford and Sons, the band, have this in, this beautiful song, Roll Away Your Stone. Uh, and one of the lyrics in there is that it's not it's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with every start. Um, that the almost like the picture of a God who knows you're on your way home and is excited before you even appear into to view. I never really got that very much. 
Huh. I just got like I was trying to deal with guilt issues. Um, and again, it's part of my Pentecostal baggage. I have a bunch of Pentecostal good baggage. I have some Pentecostal bad baggage. Yeah. Um, but so, so it just makes me cautious with the words repentance because I'm always like, well, what do you mean? Um, because if it's guilt, I kind of got sick of that. I'm not really interested in that anymore. Yeah, and there's occasionally we'll do a, a confession prayer in the in the services at South, and you'll notice that a lot of the times I'll say something along the lines of like, I think that confession gets a bad rap, right? Yeah. I've said that multiple times in services. It's actually like this detoxing of our yes. sin. It's basically yeah, yeah. saying, I'm reminding myself of the gospel that I get to hand over my brokenness mm. to your goodness and you 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 heal me. Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, it's it's like detoxing the sin, the even the shame, the guilt from the system, rather than trying to muster guilt mm. and muster shame and make yourself feel as bad as possible. It's an acknowledgement, yes, I am broken, and I see the brokenness, and I give it back to you. I think that touches on, I, I always felt I didn't feel bad enough. I was almost trying to feel If I felt worse. bad enough, I would stop doing the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, if only I could feel guilty enough, everything would be different. Um, hmm. and, and so knowing like when to let go of guilt, which seems like it's pretty early on. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this beautiful line in the screw tape letters where he says, e even of, of, their, of their sins, God doesn't want them to think very much once they're repented of. It's like the forgetfulness is almost invited. Um, huh. don't, keep bringing, don't keep bringing it back up. I think Isaiah says something like he's buried our sins in the sea of his forgetfulness. Um, mm. th th those are beautiful images, and yet my guilt f still felt it was very attached to me. Um, and, and actually that happens in, in um, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim still, like he carries around this load and he's always trying to get rid of it, and religion actually just doesn't do that for him. It's not yeah. until he gets to the cross that he feels like it's really lifted. Um, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, isn't that fascinating? You, the thing that you expect to alleviate shame and guilt, uh, when appropriated incorrectly, meaning mainly religion, it actually makes it worse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is, which is actually the beauty of the gospel, right? The, the, the true gospel is this thing that frees us from that guilt and that shame, um, which is this gift. So, uh, very rocky transition here, but we do have some, uh, at least a question. Yeah. And it's just a light soft. My, my transition was so much smoother earlier. It was. Yeah. You had this like. So segue, repentance. Repentance. <laughs> yeah. All right. So this, here's our segue. So our question is this. Uh, how many of you out there have ever heard of double election? That's where we're going. <laughs> All right. So. Compare this passage. Gird your loins, people. Take a deep breath. Yeah, here we go. Double election. Comparing this passage, Jeremiah 18 and 19, to Romans 9, verses 10 through 24. Does this provide evidence that Paul expands upon Jeremiah's Potter analogy to promote a theology of reprobation, or some, is, some would call it double predestination or double election? Um, so, all right. I feel like we need to do some definition of terms, and then we'll look at Romans chapter 9. So describe what's double election or double predestination. So 
broadly speaking, if you're comfortable with the term predestination, that there's this idea uh, specifically within um, more Calvinistic theology of um, God selecting people for salvation. So that would be election. Or, um, or the book of Ephesians also says predestination. Uses the word the word predestined, predestined yes. Yeah, yeah. So what exactly that means would be a better conversation. Exactly, yeah. totally. Yeah, right. that, the, the, keeping it theological, there, so there God are, hand selects uh, who's going to yeah, get so saved. Like right, you got that's election. You got a hundred people. Uh, you're you're going to pick ten. Well, let's make it even. Let's say fifty. Let's be optimistic. So you got your fifty people. They get to go off to heaven. So what about the other fifty? Um, now election broadly or, or predestination would suggest that those other 50 are not selected to anything, but by nature of not being selected to, to be redeemed, will go to hell. Uh, double election would move that conversation on and say, well, no, specifically God both chooses the 50 that will be saved and he chooses the 50 that will go to hell will be damned as well. So it's yeah, like, it's... The, you go here, you yeah, go there. Yeah, it's not, a very... Not just you can't come here or you're not invited here, but it's a specific labeling of, no, you 50 have a group and you 50 have another group. And that's that's it. Yeah. Um, so there you go. There's yeah. reprobation so, or so double election. I feel like I shouldn't have had to explain it because you're the only one of us that has ever held to the view of double I actually used to hold to the view i i used to call myself a pretty like a nine point calvinist so just and extra one of the points, points in, yeah one of the points that beyond the five point calvinism is double election as as a full-on like wesleyan armenian uh, uh <laughs> growing up pentecostal my my horrible general generalization of you calvinists would have been oh yeah you guys would just love to add extra points to everything wouldn't you that's, that's always, right the that's more right. points the better <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, we don't want any ambiguity. We got to define it and number it and label it and yeah. chart it out on it. Yeah. So yeah. Um, and, and by we, I'm not in that camp anymore. By the way, well, well um, when you can't know whether you're saved or not, you've got to know something. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so uh, this uh, this concept of double election. So let's look at Romans chapter nine. So we've already talked about Jeremiah. Yeah. Eighteen nineteen. That's this concept of he. He's planning a destruction, uh -huh. that language, right? Planning a destruction. And then we have this passage here um, in Romans chapter nine. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by father, our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purposes in election might stand, not by the wor works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Mm. Uh, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, and so on and so forth. And we could go, and there's other passages we could reference here, but that's a a text that a double election or double predestination person would turn to mm. to yeah. uh, explain that. Another one would be uh, Paul's treatment of Pharaoh. Uh -huh. He hardened Pharaoh's uh -huh. heart and that sort of concept. Yeah. Yeah. So have at it, Wesleyan, Armenian. So, so let's go back to the question. Uh, okay. Which was. Yes. Uh, 
does does Paul expand upon Jeremiah's Potter analogy to promote a theology of this? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, I think f- the first easy part of the question, I think, is probably pottery and a potter is pretty common imagery across literature in in anywhere from Jeremiah's times to 600 BC all the way through to where Paul's writing, maybe in Romans somewhere around 65 AD or something like that. Um, so, so there's not necessarily a connection just because they pick the same image. Um, I would say if, if Paul picks Jeremiah's image, if you, let me start, if you believe Paul prescribes to election and Paul picks Jeremiah's image to prove that or to demonstrate that, well, it's a really poorly chosen image because Jeremiah clearly doesn't believe in election. Um, Why not? Well, because he clearly lays out like, yeah, if you turn, all will be well. Um, if you keep going the way you're going, stuff will go badly. Like it's, it's the, the human element in Jeremiah is pretty clearly laid out yes, and pretty unavoidable. So if Paul's saying, yeah, just like Jeremiah said with the pot, people could be chosen for one thing or another. Well, Jeremiah seems to believe it's pretty much down to human behavior and human response uh, and anyone's invited. There to seems that. to be what, so, uh... It's like how how many theological concepts do we throw into a podcast episode? But there is a libertarian free will feeling yeah, in Jeremiah. Definitely, yeah, so yeah. libertarian free will is basically this non controlled by God free mm-hmm. will. It's truly yeah. completely free to the human beings so, involved. So there's a possibility that either Paul thinks the same as Jeremiah to me and uses image and, and expands on it, or that it's completely disconnected. Um, and he just happened to pick the same image, image, say the same image, and he still might think similarly to Jeremiah, or he might think completely differently to Jeremiah, and he may be very much, maybe I'm completely wrong, and maybe Paul is a 15th century Calvinist born out of time. Nine point you know? Calvinist. Yeah, he's he's, he's long he's, before Calvin. Out, so. And there's debate whether Calvin was a Calvinist, but anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so. But okay, so that deals with Jeremiah's yeah. side of the question. But oh, this is the new covenant. Paul's bringing mm-hmm. some extra special yeah. revelation here. Maybe Paul is sort of course correcting and saying, no, this is actually what's going on. There yeah. is this double election process. So how do we deal with Paul's passage? Yeah, and 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 the fascinating thing with with oops, as much as I've made jokes about your camp, which I'm going to keep calling your camp, even though wow. it's not really your camp anymore. Um, as much as I've made jokes about that, the, the struggle with election versus free will, if you could term it like that, is that simply the Bible has both elements in it. It, it, it Depending on the passage you start from and the passage you choose to lead, you'll make your argument work. Um, so, so, So when you think about other parts of scripture, my question would always be, are there other parts of scripture that suggest any sense of human choice, um, any invite to all? And and most people would say, yeah, well, there are other parts of scripture. So so when you rub up against those, you tend to say, well, yeah, but my, my default passage is Romans chapter nine. Uh, if that's your default passage, then you're going to have to find a different way to explain why Jesus will say things like, I'll call, I'll draw all men to myself. Um, you know, whoever so will may come, all those different elements. Like you, 
you have to yeah you, you have a passage that leads so romans 9 is a difficult passage if you're a firm armenian it's the one that you look at and say oh wow that that hits pretty heavy yeah that's that's a tricky one um um so maybe i maybe a more helpful way of approaching this question because we we could get into the word wording of why does this word what is this word hate uh, it's, yeah it's fascinating yeah. um we could both because he's quoting an old testament uh -huh. text yeah. in malachi um in in that hate language uh -huh. so you could say what's the greek word hate that's the new testament version uh -huh. and what's that imply what does it mean for god to hate someone yeah which does imply this double election thing and and that is a translation, a Greek translation from a Hebrew or an Aramaic mm -hmm. passage. I don't know which language it is, most likely Hebrew. And there's a this term hate there. What's that word yeah. mean? So we could get into the weeds there, but we maybe could... what would be more helpful is why don't you personally hold, which you're starting to already hint at, uh, hold to that more double election or um, strong Calvinist angle so i think i think what would be helpful with this is the, the intricacies of the language are probably a little bit beyond us in a podcast with no materials in front of us but but broadly where does it land in the midst of paul's argument in romans chapter 9 through 11 yes. which is you know he moves on through this incredible high point where he like romans chapter 8 you probably it's probably about as good a literature as you can you can experience i mean it's like this high soaring passage uh, yeah. that lands in there's no condemnation for those that are in christ jesus and then he starts to move on to like well, well what about my nation israel so so broadly speaking paul as he so often does is landing in corporate terms so so part of my struggle with people's understanding of election is that they'll they'll immediately go to individuals so they'll immediately think about you and your position with or not with christ or in yes. Paul's language, in Christ. Okay. For the most part, broadly speaking, the language tends to be more corporate than that. And of course, corporate society, very different to our society. So quite often, um, the language will be more around groups of people. Um, as it is here, so Paul is actually trying to wrestle with, well, what's happened to Israel um, as a group of people? Yeah, so when he says Jacob... Yeah. In in a Hebrew mind, that's very rarely the individual uh -huh. Jacob. Yeah, it's very. And then he says, "I hated Esau." Uh -huh. It's very rarely referring to yes. actually the human yes. being, individual Esau. Jacob is a representative of the whole. As just is the like point in Malachi, Malachi is not really talking primarily about J uh, Jacob and Esau. He's talking about the nations of Moab yeah. and of, the people that yeah, came out yeah. of Jacob and the people that came out of Esau. Uh -huh. Um, yes. So that's one significant thing. So, okay, so, so like, so, so when people automatically take it and they move it very individual, I'm like, we'll talk more about the corporate nature first before we can get there. Like what's Paul's broad argument here. And really what he's trying to figure out is why so many of his fellow Israelites haven't seen Jesus as he sees Jesus. Um, so, so he's wrestling with like what we, what we would call today a replacement theology. What's happened to Israel now? Uh, are they, are they out? Are they done with? Are they, are they discarded? Uh, is the church now the, 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 the vision? Are they the covenant body? 
where does Israel and the church fit together? Are they the same thing? So it's actually progressive for Paul. It's like he's moved from seeing himself as, or at least the church as just a Jewish sect, which is really how it begins. So, so yep. all of these Jewish people initially start believing the Messiah has come. They're not, not Jewish. Um, they're the Jewish people who believe their Messiah has arrived, as there are many people today who would describe yeah, it, the same thing. You could maybe describe it in modern terms as like Christianity started almost as like a denomination. Yeah, of absolutely. Judaism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so they're, they're wrestling with like to start with with some of that. Then they start adding Gentiles. The church starts to become more significant. Starts to expand. Starts to, in some places, have a presence that Judaism never had. Um, yeah. you know, there's, there's now suddenly cities all over the, the Greek speaking world that have bigger Christian presences than they do Jewish presences. Um, and so it suddenly starts to become more of its own thing. Uh, and so now as that happens, you feel Paul wrestling in his mind with, well, he still sees, sees himself as Jewish. Yeah, totally. Uh, that he just found his Messiah. And now he's got all of these converts that never saw themselves as Jewish that see themselves as the church. And so he's now having to wrestle with, well, what about the Jewish people? What happens to them now? Um, and that's where some of his language of branch and grafted in come, starts to develop. Uh, and he starts to maintain, no, there is still a place for Jews. And then he almost seems like he caves completely to me because he starts to say, well, not everyone who says they're Israel is really Israel. Um, and so you're kind of like, wait a second, what what are you saying here? Like, he almost seems to imply, well, the true Jewish people will believe in the end. Um, so so even he is murky on this big corporate level um, yeah. without um, being, w without even getting to the individual part. So So I'm just always intrigued by that as the primary point. And then when huh. you get to the individual aspect of that, to me, then I'm starting to look at all these other passages that, you know, why is it that, uh, that, that Peter will say something like, you know, that, that God desires everyone to repent and come to knowledge of the truth. Yeah. Um, where, where does that fit with the sense of election? Yeah. So for, um, for me, like my journey, like I said, um, I'm not going to get into Romans 9 specifically, but I, I I think to reiterate what you're just saying, part of what your answer is to this Roman 9 passage versus Jeremiah, like Jeremiah 1, it, it does seem like a very strange illustration if Paul's specifically referring to Jeremiah's language and consciously uh -huh. thinking, oh, I'm adopting Jeremiah's language. Um, two, if you're just dealing with Paul's text in isolation... Let's look at it in context. What's the flow of his argument? Those sorts of things. So that deals with a little bit of the Romans 9. Now, mind you, there's people that completely disagree with us on this. But oh, in general, yeah. uh, uh, a more an Armenian uh, framework of the scriptures versus a Calvinist framework of the scriptures, how did that—did uh, you ever feel like you were in more of a Calvinist camp? No, I mean, I, the, the, the re I've often wondered— whether you know you know the 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 there's always the joke right that the conservative baptist is like um it's a uh what's the word i'm looking for it's a tautology it's like it's saying the same thing over it's it's not necessary there are no non-conservative baptists um <laughs> and and uh 
Calvinist Pentecostal is probably an antonym like that. <laughs> <laughs> there just doesn't seem to be any. Um, so that was so like a foundation for me. Now, I would say that I pushed into theological questions that were both rare in the Pentecostal circles I was in. And also I chose positions in other theological or I felt called to certain positions in, in other theological areas that Pentecostals would disagree with completely. But for whatever reason, to me, I was never able to separate the idea that, that God loved everyone, died for everyone, and had specifically chosen some. So, so I think like the logical argument really struggled for me. Um, and so then it was just harder for me maybe to see it in scripture. Um, and, and of course, Armenian theology, and, and if you're not familiar with these terms, you can do some reading and there's, there's a whole bunch of things that, that fit into broadly Armenian theology and broadly Calvin, Calvinistic theology. Um, Armenians are a lot less comfortable with sola scriptura as a position. So that's a very Calvin idea, um, that scripture alone. Yes. Armenians are, uh, I, I, I am unashamedly prima scriptura. So scripture is the primary thing, but then there's tradition, there's reason, there's the voice of the spirit, all that fit into how we know about God and how we believe he speaks. Um, so that, that like when you grow up in that, that mindset, you may be a little bit more comfortable saying, huh, does that argument track logically with the rest of scripture? Um, yeah. Then you might be. What, and even those who hold to like a more classic, you know, only scripture, uh -huh. sola scriptura, um, usually they appeal to the, to quote unquote logic a ton yeah, maybe in their so, arguments. Yeah. And so they're, they're actually appealing to, um, to another element, which is just, you know, logical flow of thought or something, you know, it's, it's not sola scriptura is my point. Yeah. I think but, it's very uh, hard it's, to, yeah. It, and, and even if you don't think you have a lens, when you look at scripture, no, you have a lens, you just don't know your lens. Yeah. So being, so that, that's just me revealing. I'm quite aware of my lens in that respect. Like I tend to bring that aspect to it. And, and I, I'm intrigued by how we read the words of Jesus in a, in a distinctly Calvinistic light. Now I'm sure there's people that would say, no, I see it there really clearly. Yeah. And I, and, I, I would have said, I saw it there in this season of my life. You know, so what's strange is like, I started in a Calvary Chapel church, which would have been a little bit more in that, um, I wouldn't call it Pentecostal, but much more in that space. Uh -huh. And was, I remember in one of my youth group, someone actually whispering, did you know that so-and-so, the student, this other student, did you know he's a Calvinist? Ooh, like scary, you know? So very like Calvinists are probably heretics, right? Yeah. I bet you had like harder, like eyebrows and stuff when you were that, like they left constant frown on your face. When I was a Calvinist? Yeah. yeah probably really? Like, yeah. No, this was when I was an Armenian oh, this prior. Probably, so this yeah. is where I grew up yeah, in youth group. All the time. <laughs> Wow, you're like facial expressions based upon my theological persuasion. Yeah. Um, and then I went to uh, a very Armenian Bible college for a year, and it was there that I sort of 
started discovering some of the writings of Calvin. It, uh-huh. was, it wasn't even writings of Calvin that it's, I just started re- discovering some reformed writers and specifically on the subject of grace and grace in, in the Calvinistic framework is so big. Uh-huh. This, yeah. the, the scope of a Calvinist mind of yeah. grace is, is majestic. Right. Uh-huh. And so I was fully persuaded and um, I'm just deep diving into the epistles at that time. And there's a lot of proof texts in the epistles for a Calvinist framework. And then uh, years later, I went through the rest of my Bible college career, probably being firmly seated in that camp, started my pastoral career here at South, and then uh, ran into our previous lead pastor and was b- shocked that he could possibly not be a Calvinist. It's so much so that I almost resigned. You almost resigned? I almost resigned over this issue because I wasn't him. sure. I want to know if he almost fired you because... It... <laughs> yeah. No, he didn't. Um, and be- partially because I had pictured this kind of personality and character of God um, in a from a Calvinist framework, and I it was hard for me to imagine God differently. Mm. It, it wasn't my my sorrow with shifting camps was less to do with actually shifting camps. It was more that I was like, I haven't known God at all, oh. all of these years. And I thought of it as a beautiful, majestic, grace-filled kind mm. of framework. Um, but the thing that won me over, at least was it was like the, the theological um, pebble in that just rippled out through the rest of my soul is... Uh, Ryan, our previously pastor, said something like, yeah, I, you know, he was like, he didn't make a big deal out of it at all. He said, you know what, I think uh, Calvinists have a way easier time dealing with a few individual passages of yes. Scripture. Yeah. There's some proof texts that are extremely difficult for an Armenian to deal with uh-huh. and wrestle with, but uh, an Armenian has a better time describing the overall scope and narrative infrastructure of the entire scripture story of of the gospel. And that was like, I started then scouring through the scriptures looking for that, and I just couldn't hold to these individual proof texts anymore. Um, Yeah, that's that's really what I'm talking about with with my my struggle with following, like, uh, God loves the world, God sends his son for the world, God specifically picks specific people to accept that gift or not. Um, It just felt like, huh, I I don't really get that. Like, like you, you give this giant gift, like you want the, the maximal good from it. Um, And, and so I just, I, I couldn't follow the narrative arc and see that. Yeah. And I think, I think there's a lot of, uh, comfort in a, there's a little bit more black and white, frameworks in a Calvinist uh, reading of, of the passage. It's this, it's not this. Whereas you, you're dealing a little bit more in poetry and narrative and, and story arc in a, in Armenian worldview uh, or framework for the scriptures, which is a little bit scary because there's a little bit of, well, I'm involved and I actually interact and I might, God might, change his opinion about a few things that is a little bit scary when you really want god to just be in control of everything 
Yeah, I, 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 uh, I have sometimes thought the scary thing about the Bible is the only thing that's black and white in it are the letters. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like yeah. The, you know, the, there's like, uh, there's a lot of like shifting sands that we're trying to, trying to figure out, okay, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, what does that mean? And, and so it's, a, it's certainly a complicated area to wrestle with. Um, and, and I think to go back to Jeremiah, he clearly doesn't seem to believe it. Um, because there is this like choice between one, one option and another. Um, and he really is as Ezekiel is at the same time. Like, yeah, you pick. Um, yeah. But oh, that you would choose life. As Joshua prayed for it. Yeah. And so over and over and again, the scriptures are just appealing like to this new way. God, God offers the people in Jeremiah's mm -hmm. time an opportunity for repentance, an opportunity to choose something different to not go that path, uh -huh. and then they will be healed and restored. And then his promise is, I have wonderful plans for you, right? Yeah. That's that's his heart, his desire, mm. and he lays out the pathway there. They choose the alternative pathway. It goes horribly wrong. And turns out the, you know, Babylon and these other nations are also not obeying the way yeah. of God, and therefore it goes horribly wrong for them as well. So it does feel like so much less determined. And, and, and that's where Jesus gets fascinating because he even says, like, the nations that never got the laws I gave you, well, well they're judged less harshly. Um, you know, it'll be better for Tyre and Sidon uh, yeah. in the judgment than it will be for, for you guys. Like, Sodom will get off better than you guys um, because they, they were outsiders. Uh, yeah. Of course, they acted like outsiders. Yeah, so I guess maybe before we close, well, one, do you have anything else that you want people to remember from your message specifically? I, yeah, I think, I think it's the, the yeah. idea that repentance is a constant invite. It's a constant welcome home. Um, our job is to turn. Um, it's not to, to force guilt. It's just to simply keep orientating ourselves back towards God, um, which Jeremiah is constantly inviting people into. Yeah, and maybe one note that I would say when it comes to these tricky questions and debates in the Christian world, like Calvinism, Arminianism, you could go into old earth, young earth, you could go into all sorts of things. Um, I, I think one thing that most scholars would agree on, regardless of which camp they're in, is that the scriptures are designed and like part of the God-breathed nature of the scriptures is they're meant to be meditated on yes. and chewed on and returned to. Yeah, yeah. And so don't let this be a roadblock to say, I don't get it, I'm frustrated, I'm out. It's actually, if, it, if it's confusing and uh, this feels weird compared to this text, compared to, that's all almost like the Spirit's masterful yeah. design to force us to linger and to meditate and ask God and pray and then reference another scripture and then hear a sermon and eventually mm. start to picture the face of God as it and actually if, is. Yeah. And if you, if you're someone that likes to read, if you've got a distinct view of one theological position versus another, I think one of the things I always encourage people to do is, is to read the opposite view, totally. find an author that you can connect with and just explore some of that. I actually had a, a guy I worked with once who pushed me on like, I want you to read more reformed people. And I was like, what makes you think I haven't? Um, and he's like, well, you're not reformed. I'm like, yeah, I, I've read them and I'm still not reformed. Like, uh, but I'm, I have no problem reading them. 
Um, yeah. My suspicion was he hadn't read many of the opposite side of the argument texts and that he'd read all of the things he wanted me to read. Um, but his assumption was if only I'd read them, I would have moved in that direction. Uh, you might read the opposite point of view and stay exactly where you are. And my suspicion is that that perhaps God is far less interested in this debate than we are. Um, that that he's he's not. And then when it comes down to it, I wonder whether we're as committed to it. I, I remember chatting to one of Laura's family members, and uh, his son had been a drug addict, and then got really connected to his faith again in a Calvinist church. And Laura's family members like determinedly he's a Wesleyan. Yeah. And I said, how do you feel about that? Like, you know, he's he's jumped into this camp, like this, totally. the opposite to your camp. And he, he looked at me and said, like, I'm just delighted he's following Jesus again. Uh, suddenly the the like, which camp was he in didn't matter. Um, and that's actually, yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that's tremendously wise, like read some of these other things. And what I've found is over the years, I have a few things theologically that I cling to. Uh-huh. I I love the person of Christ, yeah. the, the work, the life, the resurrection. These are things that I'm like clinging to. And the rest of it, I'm like, I think it's this, but I don't really care if I'm yeah. wrong. Like it, it yeah. the gravity of some of these decisions feels so much lighter to me over yeah. the years because you start to see incredibly wise, incredibly gifted scholars uh, falling slightly in one camp or another. And what really makes the difference is, are they increasingly becoming more and more in the image of Jesus? Is the way of Jesus having more influence there in their life or not? That's the game changer, And we talked, right? like, on Sunday, we talked about the the thief on the cross that responds well to invitation and really, like, what does he know when he gets to heaven? Like, the guy in the middle cross told me I could oh, come. Oh, so good, yeah. Like, that's all, that's all it is. And, and most of the early church seems to be built on uh, redemption from some guilt they already had based on a resurrection that they knew to be real. That's pretty much the centrality of it. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes that's just good enough. So Absolutely. All right, on that Great note. Great to see you guys. See yeah. you next week. All right, sounds good. Tune, you all, uh, tune in later. And I'm like, supposed to say close things or whatever. Yeah. Things. All right. Goodbye. Review some stuff. <laughs> Bye. Well, thanks again for listening. And we hope that that was a helpful conversation for you. We'd love to interact with you about this. So feel free to leave comments, questions, all that sort of thing. And we'll try our best to get back to you when we can. Have a great day.